Good morning, everybody. Like my lovely wife said, and that is my lovely wife, uh, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us today. I see a lot of fresh new faces. And as always, we want to welcome those of you who are watching us uh, on our live stream or maybe you're watching on demand later. It's so, glad, uh, so good to have you here with us. And like Shana said, this is Friends and Family Day, so welcome to Friends and Family Day. And how many of you here because somebody invited you on this special day? I see some new folks here? Good. And so basically what we asked our people to do, say, we said, find the most difficult person you know, the most challenging person in your life, and invite them to church. And so you got picked, right? Actually, that's not what happened. And if somebody invited you to church today, it's because they love you. They love their church, and they want you to celebrate and taste and see what they regularly get to experience here at the SSV. And so if you're visiting with us today because somebody invited you to Friends and Family Day, we want to warmly welcome you, and we want to make sure you stick around for a delicious lunch that we're going to have after service today. Uh, I'm going to continue a teaching series that we're called calling One Anothering. One Anothering is our summer relationship series, and if you're familiar with our rhythm here as the South Suburban Vineyard Church, you know that we pause every summer to focus on relationships. In this year's series, we're calling one anothering. And the phrase one another is said to occur a whole lot of times in the New Testament alone, and the 60 of those occurrences are specific commands, as we said last week, teaching us how to and how not to relate to one another, love one another, be devoted to one another, build up one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another, just to name a few all to say that the scripture has a high regard for how we engage one another, the other humans in the world that we live in. The Bible is full of wisdom and instruction on relationship because our relationships get at one of the two greatest commandments. The first is to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And the other is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we shrink that down. We make it real simple for you to grab a hold of. We simply say love God and love people. It's at the center of who we are as people who are serious about the Christian faith. And I'm thankful that the scriptures have a whole lot to say about what it means to love people. The scriptures don't leave us hanging. And so the series, as we often say, is designed to help us deal with one of the most significant aspects of our human lives, the Christian life, and that is our relationships. And last week we began this teaching series talking about self-awareness. And basically the idea is that it's gonna be hard, and by hard I mean nearly impossible to love people well if you don't know or if you don't care how you're being experienced by those people. i say it again, you won't love people well, you won't show up well in the world if you don't know and or if you don't care how you're being experienced by other people. And I, and I gave each of you a wonderful assignment uh, and many of you have engaged in that. I've gotten some emails myself and basically I gave you five self-awareness questions to send to the people who know you and who interact with you. And I asked a few of those people who did the exercise to just share uh, a few words as to what they experienced this week. One person said, this exercise has first given me the opportunity to face the reality of how I'm showing up to others, which can be a bit intimidating since my intent versus my impact could be misaligned. She continues, after receiving some feedback, I now have this opportunity to sit with God and ask for help and help me close the gap between intent and impact because 
uh, excuse me, but also help me stand confidently in the ways, the positive ways that people are experiencing me. And several others have reflected to me that this exercise has been really, really helpful. We were discussing the, the message in small group this week, and one lady said, hey, Pastor, can you send me that email again? Because when you first sent it to me, I deleted it. I couldn't think of a single soul. And by the time small group was over, she had nine people in mind, and she wanted me to send it over again. And so I, do we have that QR code? Can you put that up if we have it? Uh, if you want to do this exercise, if you want to lean into this, uh, there's an opportunity to do that. You can click on that QR code. It's also under our website, uh, and our website under the More tab, and then you can engage with it there. But today I want to continue this series by focusing on failure and mistakes. Our failure and mistakes. If you're human and you do life with other humans, you're going to have to engage failure and mistakes. But the focal point of today's message isn't necessarily going to be on our own failure and mistakes, but when people around us fail, people we're in relationship with, the people we keep company with, people we share a house with, share office space with, fall and make mistakes, uh, how do we show up? I'll never forget when I was a, a student at the University of Illinois, my years there, I had a bunch of jobs. At, at one point, I had three jobs, you know, trying to make ends meet. I worked uh, as a Zamboni driver at the U of I Ice Arena. I worked uh, at a TV station. I worked um, at a Christian bookstore. But I also uh, spent some time cleaning carpets for a company called Exact Extraction, carpet and upholstery cleaning. And I was quite good, if I could say so myself, right? One day I'm at this house, and I'm cleaning carpets, and I wrap up after a long day, and I'm backing out of the driveway, and out of nowhere, the largest, biggest suburban just appears out of nowhere. I don't know who parked that car right there, but it came out of nowhere, and I go smashing in to this huge, brown, parked suburban. Person whose house I was cleaning came out to see if everything's all right, and of course the neighbor who owns the car comes out of the house and is a tall, older white gentleman, and his name was Steve Stiff. Steve Stiff. And I'm thinking in my head, oh my goodness, I ran into this guy's truck. He shakes my hand. I say, Steve, we're going to make this right. I'm going to call my insurance company. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, I haven't, I haven't paid my insurance bill in a while. And so <laughs> I'm not quite sure how this is going to turn out. I was actually quite sure how it was going to turn out because when I called them and tried to pay my bill to get caught up so they could maybe cover the accident that I just had moments ago, they told me, it don't work like that. <laughs> and so I had to go back to this older, stern-looking uh, guy, Mr. Steve Stiff, and tell him that I wasn't covered and that I didn't have insurance and that I would gladly pay him in installments. I wasn't sure how he would respond. Uh, young man, I don't know what even the repercussions were. Maybe he called the police, I get arrested, I don't know, get a ticket. When I talked to Steve, he said, that's okay, Eugene, you can pay me in installments, a little bit a month. We worked out an arrangement. And so I began to pay Steve once a month. And what you know, that first month, my check to Mr. Stiff bounced. <laughs> and Mr. Stiff called me, 
And I'm doing a really, you don't know him, but I'm doing a really good impression of him. And he said, Gene, uh, something wrong with the check. I said, no problem, Mr. Stiff. I'll bring it. I brought the check to his house. And do you know, without any hesitation, without any quarreling, he didn't give me any trouble. He let me come and bring him a little bit of money every month to take care of the damage that I've done. Now, that, that may not seem like a big deal to you. But in my world, this black kid coming from the south side of Chicago, trying to figure out how to deal with different people, especially older white gentlemen, I expected a different response from this man. And do you know, I never forget, forgot the kindness that Mr. Stiff showed to me. I never, ever forgot it. He could have let me have it. I don't even know what his options were, but it wasn't lost on me that he acted mercifully toward me. And as I was reflecting on that story and others like it, as I reflected on this message this week, I came to this conclusion that I'm never not paying attention to how people around me respond to me when I mess up. Am I alone in this? As I comb through my thinking, I'm never unaware I'm never not paying attention to how people respond to me when I mess up in ways big and small, whether I mess up here, make a mistake on the staff, or I say something silly up here that I have to walk back, whether I screw up at home, even if I'm on playing pickup basketball and I miss a shot and somebody goes, come on, man. I can like hear that. Even though he's down the court, I can hear somebody's displeasure. I'm never not present to how people are regarding me when I mess up. And all I want to know is, can I fail with dignity around you? Can I make a mistake and keep, still keep my dignity? I'm equally interested in how the people around me respond to the mistakes and the failures of others. I think it's one of the best indicators of character there is. You want to find out what somebody's made of, go out to eat with them. See how they respond when the waitress messes up. Walk into the office after a boss, after the secretary or the administrative assistant does something silly or somebody on the staff messes up in a, in a, in a profound way. Watch how they respond to the failures of others. It's vitally important. While all that is important, I think what's most important is that I need to pay attention to how I respond when the people in my life fall, fail, and make mistakes. I'd like to think that I'm doing pretty good in this area. I'd like to think that I am quick to forgive and quick to show mercy. I wonder if anybody in my life would attest to that. I don't even want to look over at my wife right now. But I feel like I am quick to forgive and quick to move on unless, somebody say unless, unless you got an attitude. See, in my worldview, you can make a mistake or you can have an attitude but, but you can't do both. And so what I had to sit with this week is that I am quick to forgive unless you make the mistake of not owning what you've done. Or unless you make the mistake of having an attitude and not being contrite 
and not owning what you've done, I realize that I have a ways to go. And my suspicion is that we all can learn something today. Can people fail or fall or make a mistake around you and me and maintain their dignity as far as it concerns us? Is it true? And so I'm simply calling this message this morning, responding well when others fail. Responding well when others fail. It can be hard to do. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture this morning in Genesis chapter 9. Meet me there in your Bibles. Feel free to use the Bibles that are uh, situated at the edges of your rows. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, at your house that you can understand, feel free to take that Bible home as a gift from us to you. You can also engage with the Scripture through your mobile device. We'll also be projecting it on the screens. Genesis chapter 9, responding well when others fail. While you find that, let me pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather yet again in your house with your people in your name. Teach us this morning, Lord. Would you put a mirror in front of us and show us who we are? May we be humble. May we be receptive. May we be listening and ready to respond. Put power on these words that you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way this morning so that your truth and your light might shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Genesis chapter 9, I'm going to start at verse 18. It reads this way. The sons of Noah who came out of the boat with their father were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham is the father of Canaan. From these three sons of Noah came all the people who now populate the earth. After the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground, and he planted a vineyard. One day, he drank some wine he had made, and he became drunk and lay naked inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. When Shem and Japheth, excuse me, verse 23, then Shem and Japheth took a robe, held it over their shoulders, and backed into the tent to cover their father. As they did this, they looked the other way so they would not so they would not see him naked. When Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. Then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest of servants to his relatives. And then Noah said, May the Lord, the God of Shem, be blessed, and may Canaan be his servant. May God expand the territory of Japheth, and may Japheth share the prosperity of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Noah lived another 350 years after the great flood. He lived 950 years, and then he died. This is the word of the Lord. This is an interesting text, and I think that it really helps us to see what we need to see this morning, particularly as it relates to how we respond, either well or poorly, when those around us have failed or fallen. This is one of the lesser-known episodes in the life of one of our biblical heroes, Noah. Noah, God's righteous man, God's righteous preacher who was sent by God to build an ark when God, being fed up with the people that he created, decided that he was going to start over. And then starting over, he said, Noah, get your people together. I want you to pick two of each animal, build a big old boat, and despite the fact that it never rained, you were going to preach God's righteousness and preach that it's going to rain. And when it rained, there was a great flood, and all were destroyed except Noah, his family, and those animals that he took on the boat. And of course, when all that water went away, 
there was this rainbow, which was a promise that God would never destroy the earth in that manner again. And one commentary writer uh, said, as he talked about this particular passage that we're talking about today, that uh, Noah quickly goes from rainbows to shadows as we behold his failure. We see Noah here in one of his less than shining moments, and a few things peek out to me that I want to unpack as we talk about how to respond well when others fail. A few things. The first we see is Noah's failure. Noah's failure. Verse 20 says, After the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground, and he planted a vineyard. One day he drank some wine that he had made, and he became drunk and lay naked in his tent. His failure stems from his drunkenness. And if we could, just give a quick lesson on the dangers of drunkenness. Scriptures don't say that drinking is a sin or that drinking in and of itself is bad, but the scriptures are clear that nothing good comes to those who get drunk, particularly those who make a practice of it. His drunkenness led to a shameful situation where he found himself not just drunk, but naked in his tent. Noah, after the flood, became a bit of a farmer like his father Lamech. And winemaking wasn't new to Noah, but certainly they ate wine before the flood. And so the scriptures give us this indication that Noah wasn't like, Noah was like, hmm, I wonder what this will do to me, <laughs> right? Noah planted the grapes, harvested the grapes, squeezed out the juice in the wine press, and waited for it, the ferment. We get the idea that Noah knew what he was doing, and so he's fallen, he's failed. He's exposed and vulnerable, naked, probably slurring his speech in his tent, which brings us to the second thing we see here, which is a moment of truth. A moment of truth, not so much for Noah, but for his sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. They are about to be tested. One of my favorite quotes is a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King that says, the ultimate measure of a man, say, or a woman, is not where he or she stands in the moments of comfort and convenience, but where he or she stands at times of what? Challenge and controversy. That is to say, the measure of these men are about to be on full display, and we're going to see at least two very different responses. One of the greatest tests of character, loyalty, and friendship, I could talk about this on this Friends and Family Day, is not based on the good and high times, but who can and will cover somebody when they are exposed. I'll say that again. The real measure of character, loyalty, friendship, and family love is not who can party with you, not who can turn up with you, not who can raise a, gra a glass in the good times, but who can and will cover somebody when their nakedness is exposed. How we show up and how we respond to others in the face of their failure and mistakes is vitally important, in it, and it behooves us all to be present to how we are prone to show up with family, with friends, with coworkers, and strangers alike. Now, let me be clear before I move on that I'm not talking about covering up people's uh, infractions in a sort of devious sense. We've witnessed many, many cover-ups, right? Especially in the church, in corporate America, where you, you, you could sweep that under the rug. Don't tell nobody about this. I'm not talking about 
being devious or dubious and covering up uh, uh, people's uh, devious actions and shielding them from the natural consequences or the natural outworkings of their issues. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how you regard others around you when they fail. And as we examine the responses, I want you to consider how you typically show up, how you typically respond when somebody's failure and their mistakes are set before you. In this text and in this story, we get a few examples. First, we see that Ham, one of Noah's sons, responds poorly. Ham responds poorly and gives us a fine example of what not to do. Verse 22 says, the Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. Warren Wearsby, the great commentary writer, says, how a person responds to the sins and embarrassments of others is a great indication of their character. Now, the scriptures don't tell us a lot. They don't give us a lot of detail, but minimally we know that he did what he shouldn't have done. We don't know whether he laughed about it. We don't know what commentary we added. It really doesn't matter. He shouldn't have dealt with the matter differently. Minimally, he should have kept silent. And if we were to bring this into the modern day, basically Ham saw his dad's nakedness. He saw his dad's drunkenness. He saw his dad exposed, inebriated, and pulled out his phone, took a picture real quick, and sent it to his brothers. And he had an array of emojis <laughs> to use to make his point. Maybe he'd snap a quick picture and posted it real quick on the gram and exposed his father's nakedness. And in today's tech world, viral videos, camera phones, social media posts, our current culture is working against our natural empathetic responses to the mistakes and sins of others and instead causes us to want to bring a chair and get a front row seat to see who's failing and falling today. It's true that we are overexposed to the failures and mistakes of others with 24-hour news cycles and we've become desensitized to the indignity of failure, especially when it's public. I watch my, my kids love watching YouTube. And, and they love watching, like, failed videos. And they seem really innocent, right? Somebody falling or somebody, you know, being embarrassed. But I think about in my mind, like, what does it do to you if, like, you're just sitting there all day watching somebody fall or stumble or get hit by a door or fall on a slick piece of ice when your natural response would be to maybe go over and see if somebody's okay or maybe gasp because you're concerned because you imagine yourself in that position. You go, man, that would really hurt or that would be really embarrassed. But what might happen if over time you're constantly consuming others' failure for sport? What might it do over time to your natural dispositions uh, toward empathy and wanting to move towards somebody with help? Our culture is working against what should be a natural response to somebody else's fall and failure 
And my man Ham is no different. He beholds this distressing scene, and his first thought was, man, the brothers need to see this. Maybe they'll get a real kick out of this. And before we point our fingers at Ham, we might ask ourselves, how do we respond to the sin and the embarrassment and the failure of others? And there's a couple different realms we live in, right? Let's start with those who are up close and personal, those who we live with. Because if I've said it once, I've said it a million times, right? We, we, we are on our worst behavior oftentimes at home with the people we spend the most time with. How do we respond to the failure of other people in our homes, with our spouses, toward our parents, toward our children, toward our extended family? Some of you are like, man, I don't, I don't really do well with this. I got to hear a trigger when it comes to messing up, or maybe not messing up in general, but if you mess up in this particular way, if you spend too much money, or if you don't clean up right, and I'm, I'll, here I'm thinking like, man, how am I showing up to my kids? I'm sure they're going to tell me when I get home. Maybe you're on your worst behavior at the office. Maybe you're the boss or the supervisor. You have a little bit of power. And so you're prone to not be reflective about how you respond to the mistakes of others. Can I tell you a secret? There's some people I don't want to mess up around. Now, some of those people are people that I deeply respect, and I just don't want to let them down. And that's, like, good, right? If you got a boss, I really respect this person. I, I just don't want to let them down. I think that comes from a healthy place. But can I tell you that there's some people that I don't want to mess up around because I don't trust them to handle me well when I make a mistake. There's some people that I just, I just can't stand to mess up in front of because I just know they're going to judge me. I know in that particular area there's going to be no grace. There's nothing charitable about how they look at that. They're going to zoom to a place where I'm just an idiot. And look, none of us want to be that person. Nobody wants to be on the business end of that kind of dismissal, right? How do we show up? Now, we've talked about our in-person relationships, but in this tech, tech culture, I think we also need to talk about how we show up online too. Because some of us are just quick to expose the failure of other people. And you think, I behave pretty well when it's somebody I know, when we're in person, but if it's a stranger, if it's a celebrity, if it's a politician, like I can't wait to comment on that article on YouTube, on social media. I can't wait to be the first to share the failure of that big mega church pastor because he should know better. I think this works for folks we know and strangers alike. How do you respond when somebody's sin, somebody's failure, somebody's mistake, whether in person or online, are in front of you? How do you? I considered the fact that if Ham had responded differently, I wouldn't even be preaching this message. We wouldn't even know about it. And some of us, you are known to be the person that will readily receive information 
and readily revel in the failure of someone else. Ham shows us what not to do. Then Shem and Japheth, the other two brothers, give us an example of how to respond honorably. Shem and Japheth respond honorably. Verse 23, then Shem and Japheth took a rope. Now get this in your mind. As I'm reading this, try to picture what's going on here. Then Shem and Japheth took a rope, held it over their shoulders, and backed into the tent to cover their father. As they did this, they looked the other way so they would not see him naked. Get the picture in your mind. Shem and Japheth hatch a plan. Okay, let's get this rope and let's back into the tent so we can do this honorably. You ever backed into a tent? <laughs> you ever try to coordinate with somebody with a robe as you back into a tent, trying to cover up subject that you're also working hard not to look at? Notice the effort they take to get this right, which highlights the fact that the easiest way is usually the wrong way. It's easy to see something and run out and tell everybody. That's the easiest thing you do. Love works hardest in the face of somebody's wrong. And all the time I'm thinking, how would I want my people to respond if I fell on my face? If I made a mistake? Love works hard to nobly cover somebody's wrong. But guess what? Dishonor is lazy. I want that to sit in the room for a minute. I tell my kids all the time, look, look, the easiest thing, every, I don't know, every third Saturday, maybe the easiest thing is the most prudent, helpful, healthy thing to do. But usually the easiest thing is the wrong thing. Love works because dishonor is lazy. They put in tremendous effort. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says, Hate stirs up conflict, but love covers all wrongs. Proverbs 17, verse 9, Whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Proverbs 12, verse 16, Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. And there are many scriptures like this. And so I think this shines a really good light on these two brothers. So not only do they not spread the matter around the town, not only do they go through considerable effort to cover their father's nakedness and shame, but I want you to notice how much effort they put in to not even looking at it, to not even beholding their father's shame. They don't even want to see it. They don't even want to behold it. They know what it's going to do to their father when he wakes up. They know they can't unsee somebody's naked body. In particular, in this particular culture, to be seen naked was especially embarrassing, especially if you're somebody of status, especially if you're a parent or somebody important. They know what might result in them thinking less of their father and say they go through considerable effort. They don't even want to see it. And I wonder what you're known for. 
If somebody says, I'm not going to even take this to Alicia's because she's going to stop me three words in and tells me that's not none of my business. I'm not going to even bring that to Lonnie because he's going to stop me and say, why, why are you telling me this? Have you prayed about it? Have you talked to them about it? And can I tell you, I want to be known, I want to be known as a person who covers the nakedness of others. I want, I want to be known for somebody who does the hard work of honoring and covering over a wrong or a fraction. I don't want to be known as a person who you can come with, come to with slander, even truthful things about somebody else. I don't want to be the person. I would that you would say of me, I'm never going to hear about somebody's failure first from Gino. I want it to be said of me that I, I, he will shut you down if it even comes close to slander and gossip. Who, who are you known to be? Who are you known to be? Well, Noah wakes up, and he has something to say. He wakes up, and he, 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 he notices that he's trending on the apps. Verse 24 says, when Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned what Ham, his youngest son, had done. Verse 25 says, then he cursed Canaan, the son of Ham. May Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest servant of his relatives. And Noah said, may the Lord, the God of Shem, be blessed and may Canaan be a servant. May God expand the territory of Japheth. And may Japheth share the prosperity of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. He had an opinion about what happened when he was in, in the throes of his stupor. And regardless uh, as to whether these pronouncements of cursings or blessings were actually consequential in a material sense, some believe they were, many were. Minimally, it just shows us how displeased he was, what a significant offense it was for his son to, to, to go and broadcast his shame. But he had an opinion about what they'd done. And I think God has an opinion about how we respond to the failures and the nakedness of others. Now, I want to put this all together in one big picture. Now, we can view all this as simply some sort of bubblegum morality. We can view all of this as a move towards some Christian do-gooders. If you're a good person, you cover the mistakes of others, and you don't slander anybody. Or we can see this principally as an outworking of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others to do unto you. Love God and love people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Regard others and treat others as you would want them to see them. That's how we're supposed to see it. And we can see it as faithfulness to the greatest commandment. Ultimately, though, we can and should choose to see this as a response to how God has been merciful toward us. Of course, we're talking about Noah and his failure and how his sons responded to that failure. But ultimately, the big picture is we are challenged to regard each other mercifully and with grace and with forgiveness because that's how our Heavenly Father has 
regarded us. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Who has sinned? Some of us? All of us. All of us. You look real good. You look real cute today, but all of us are a mess. Somehow, some way, everyone has sinned in God's eyes. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Of course I would bring it back to Jesus. Of course I would bring it back to the gospel. Of course I would anchor all of this instruction in what God has done toward us. In case you've forgotten, we were on the hook for our own sins. Past, present, and future. And those sins had us racked up a debt that we would never be able to pay. And what does God do? He sends his only son <laughs> to cover that sin so that we can be right with God. But put this all together, we have screwed up in incalculable ways. We owe a debt that we cannot even begin to tally. And when God looks at our faults and failures, he doesn't expose us. He doesn't point a finger at us. Instead, he sends his son, his one and only son, to die for us so that our sin might be covered. What's my point? Everything that God asks us to do is typically in response to what he's already done for us. And when God insists through scripture, through stories like Noah's, that we cover the failure of others, that we go through great effort to show love and compassion and forgiveness and long-suffering and forbearance when people mess up, he's only reminding us that that is what God has done for us. And I wonder if you would ever sit in that for a moment, in your self-righteousness. Would you remember that Christ covered your issues and your habits and your hang-ups? And some of us have just forgotten who we used to be. Some of us quickly forget who we are right now. And it's real easy to find somebody who sins differently than you or sins more frequently than you, or has sinned more recently than you. And I think the challenge for us at worship team, you can make your way back up, as we consider what it means to live out the one another's, to deal with the most important aspects of our human relationships, and that is how are we gonna regard the person and the people in our life when they mess up. And some of you, as you've been combing through your mind, especially fresh off of a week of getting reflections from other people about how they're experiencing you, maybe you would honestly say, Pastor, I don't really do well in this area. I've got a long memory when people let me down. I've got a long memory when people fall and when they fail. 
I want to be the first to break the news, the first to discuss the matter with people who think like me, and you feel holy conviction at this moment. Others of you, you would say, I'm not generally this way across the board, but there are particular infractions. There are particular areas where I am particularly graceless when it comes to my spouse, or when it comes to my parents, or when it comes to my children, or when it comes to the people that I work with, or when it comes to this, these sorts of things that really bother me when I see them play out in the news or on social media. There are areas of my life, there are issues, there are certain infractions that I just can't hold my peace. I got to get a piece of that action. And maybe the Lord is putting his finger on that particular area of your life. Here's what I also know in a room this size that there are folks here that are nursing like soul wounds, relational and emotional wounds because how you have been handled when you have fallen and when you have failed. What I know is that in a room this size, there are people here who have gone underground as it relates to confessing and being honest and being open with the people around you because there is some trauma that can be traced to an event where you were exposed and you were vulnerable or you came clean and somebody mishandled you. Somebody dropped you. Somebody overreacted. Somebody broke your confidence and told somebody else what you told them in private. My, my, my sense is that there's somebody here nursing a wound because somebody didn't respond well when you fell. Uh, I imagine that the issues that the Lord might want to minister to today are wide. And rather than try to list them all, we'll trust the Spirit to do the nudging, the Spirit to do the heavy lifting. As we say, come Holy Spirit, may we not leave this place the same. And I think the starting place is that we will remember how the Lord has regarded us and our brokenness. That his reckless love left no stone unturned in pursuit of our healing and wholeness and redemption. And that his expectation is that we would pay forward that same forgiveness, that same grace, that same humility, and do the work to respond well when others fail. Would you stand with me as we wind down today? Father in heaven, we thank you for your reckless love. We thank you for your kindness and your mercy and your generosity toward us. And may we not forget the kindness you showed us. May we not forget your forgetfulness toward our failures and shortcomings. Remind us of your goodness. Give us the strength and courage and strength of character to show up like you showed up. And for those of us who are nursing wounds today, may the Spirit minister to those who are dealing with trauma. Come Holy Spirit, 
do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.